Podcastle, episode 298, for February 12th, 2014, The Shadow Crafter, by Ken Liu, rated PG. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle, I'm your host and co-editor Dave Thompson, it just so happens to be the week of Valentine's Day, so we have a Ken Lu story to rip out your heart and leave you blinking back the tears. Picture yourself, if you will, dear listener, in a dark, cold room lit by the silver moonlight. Shouldn't be too hard for our East Coast listeners. Hope you're all hanging in there. Before we get started, you want to hear your story. In a moment, you will. First, though, spare a thought for the stories we can't bring you yet. The stories that don't exist yet. The stories you could write. Then think about Clarion West's annual six-week writer's workshop, which would help those stories get written. Think about this year's workshop instructors. Paul Park, Kish Johnson, Ian McDonald, Hiromo Goto, Charlie Jane Anders, and John Crawley. And think seriously about the application deadline of March 1st, 2014. After you've listened to this podcast, think some more and visit www.clarionwest.org to find further details on how to apply. Now on to today's story. Here at Podcastle, we don't always know what to do with Valentine's Day. Look, I like shopped all over at Target and Hallmark for the right kind of Valentine's Day card for you, precious. But would you believe I couldn't find one with Gollum's face on it? You'd think people are getting bored by Peter Jackson's The Hobbit, Part 2 and 3 quarters. Anyway, instead we've brought you a Valentine's Day card courtesy of Ken Liu, in the shape of a historical fantasy full of love, magic, and sacrifice. Hold on, let me get a vial out so we can collect all the tears. There we go. This week, Podcastle is very proud to present The Shadow Crafter by Ken Liu, originally published in Nine in 2012. Ken Liu is the author and translator of speculative fiction, as well as a lawyer and programmer. His fiction has appeared, well, pretty much everywhere. Fantasy and science fiction, Clark's World, Lightspeed, Strange Horizons, Daily Science Fiction. He's won the Hugo, Nebula, and World Fantasy Award and a Science Fiction and Fantasy Translation Award. Nice. He lives with his family near Boston, Massachusetts, and has his first novel, A Tempest of Gold, coming out early next year. Not soon enough. But, hey, we still love you, Ken. Your reader this week is Ahi Gibbons, who last read for us Maxwell's Demons. She blogs at Okinawa Blue, and you can follow her on Twitter, at Ahi Gibbons, where she tweets about Japan, Okinawa, writing, and film. She's working on her first novel. Sweet! Now, again, picture yourself in a dark, cold, and quiet cell. Nothing but the moonlight to see by. Enjoy the story. The Shadow Crafter by Ken Liu November 1609, Kagoshima, Satsumahan, Japan. My daughter, it's dark in my prison cell, but the gods have granted me a full moon tonight so that I can write to you by the silver light spilled in front of the window. 
After the moon waxes and wanes another cycle, it will be your fourteenth birthday. Your father and I will not witness it. For that we are sorry, more than I can express in words. But we do not regret our choices. There isn't much time left, and I want to tell you the truth of our story before Priest Kion spreads his lies. This story begins, as all of my creations do, in shadows. No story is without its particular emphases and elisions, just as no woman goes about without her makeup. Many women on our home island of Uchina, they call it Okinawa here in Japan, and on the other islands that make up our kingdom of Ryuchu, copy the rumors of fashion in Nanjing and Beijing, in Kagoshima and Edo, and smother their faces with smooth creams and bright rouge, sweet-smelling powders and red lip wax. But they do not understand the true secret of the art of enhancing a woman's beauty, which now I will teach you. A face is not a flat piece of paper. Like the surface of our island, it has heights and depths, peaks and valleys. That means shadows. The prettiest woman appears old and tired under the light of the noonday sun. Her eyes are hidden in the dark shade of her brow, and her nose casts a long shadow over her mouth. All her features seem washed out, lifeless, and the harsh sun throws all her wrinkles into high relief. But this harsh light does not tell the truth. It emphasizes certain things and hides others. It is simply one way to lie by crafting the play of light and shadow on your face, an ugly, clumsy way that wipes out all subtlety of feeling and all shades of expression. On Uchina, one is always close to the beaches. There is nothing quite like the light of sunrise and sunset to adorn a woman's charms. The light, softened by the sea haze and nearly parallel to the water, fills half your face in a mysterious soft shade and bathes the other half in a gentle silken glaze. The gentle shadows enhance the shapes of your features. Wrinkles are smoothed out and eyes look bigger. No paint is needed other than the natural blush of your youth and vitality. This was how, nineteen years ago, when I was eighteen, I wanted to appear to greet the man I loved, my Ningurugwa. That dawn, people lined up along the edge of Nafa Harbor to wait for our ships returning from their tributary and trading mission to China. I'd gotten up with the stars and spent hours pinning up my hair carefully in an Uchina Kampu knot. It took many tries before the mirror. My hands were so nervous. I chose where I stood carefully so that the rising sun would strike my face at just the right angle. It had been four years since I last saw Rizan. At sixteen, he had been sent by King Shounei to cross the seas and attend the imperial academies in Nanjing and Beijing. It was a great honor for Rizan to be chosen, but I missed him. The ships arrived to the cheers of the people. The first to disembark were the king's representatives and the Chinese envoy, Chen Lehe, here to pay a courtesy visit to the king. We welcomed the envoy with appropriate rites and rituals. Chen looked bored, barely stifling a yawn. Then came the unloading of trading goods for the people and gifts from the Ming emperor to King Shounei. Boxes of silk, lacquerware, porcelain, coins, medicine, and other luxuries made by the clever craftsmen of China. I grew impatient. I wanted to see my Rizan. Rizan had grown up in Kuninda, the village of rice. His father was descended from the 36 Chinese families sent by the Honggu and Yongle emperors almost 200 years ago to settle in Uchina to teach her people the art of shipbuilding and Confucian ideals, when the warring kings of old Yuchu first asked to join Ming China's tributary system for trade. When I was little, Rizan would come by her house when his mother visited my mother, we played together, and I followed him everywhere, climbing mountains, wading through streams, and running on beaches. 
We would go to Nafa Harbor and watch the waters churn with the busy comings and goings of ships from China, Korea, Japan, Luzon, Java, and all over the world, the flow of trade that was the lifeblood of Nuchu. Rizan would carry me on his back when I got tired and carry in his hands the heavy conch shells and coconuts that I wanted. When his mother saw us, she would laugh and say, I see my son is already preparing for his life as a husband. Years passed. Rizan went to school in Kuninda and studied the Confucian classics. As a noble, it was expected that he would one day become a minister for the king. Meanwhile, my mother, a great Utah in Nafa, was growing more and more disappointed in me. She had been trying to instruct me in the ways of the Utah, women who communicate with spirits ever since I was a baby, but I continued to display no spiritual talent. Rizan taught me how to read and write Chinese when we were together, and I told him the stories only known to the Utah. Rizan's Confucian teachers dismissed the stories as primitive superstition, but Rizan loved to hear them. We had grown so used to each other's company that we did not realize when our bodies began to change, and along with them, our feelings for each other. One summer day, after we had been running through the woods for a while, we took a brief rest under a great banyan tree. As I looked at Rizan, my heart sped up in an unfamiliar way, and my face felt warm. I moved so that my face would be more in the shade cast by the banyan. Even then I understood the importance of shadows and beauty, and I looked at Rizan sideways. There was a yearning in me for his hands, his eyes, his lips, a yearning that both excited and frightened me. Things became awkward between us. My heart was beating so fast, and I didn't know what to say. Rizan sat silent and flushed too, stealing glances at me. Oh, just kiss him and be done with it, a voice said from above us. We looked up and saw a kijimuna, a tree sprite, peeking at us from among the branches of the banyan, his legs dangling below the branch he was sitting on. He looked like a little boy of five, but with a huge head, long ears, and a bright explosion of red hair, a mischievous sprite who loved to play pranks and embarrass people. He grinned widely at us. Only the pure of heart can see the kijimuna. I knew then that the thoughts and feelings I had for my Rizan were not anything to be ashamed of. We looked at each other, and then we did kiss, as the kijimuna giggled and whistled above us. Rizan finally got off the boat, and my heart leapt. He seemed familiar and yet so different. The slender frame and the boyish face in my memory were replaced by the strong shoulders and angular features of a man smiling with confidence. Dressed in a Chinese-style silk robe, with his hair worn up and covered by a cloth wrap, he looked like the Chinese envoy. I waited until he had greeted his parents and the king's ministers. He was very proper and followed all the right rituals. Then his eyes caught mine, and I blushed as I watched him walk closer. His parents smiled and pretended to be absorbed in the unloading of the ship. I was expecting to embrace him in greeting the way we always used to, but he stopped about five paces from me and lifted his hands together before him with his palms facing himself, the left hand covering the right, and as the billowing wide sleeves of his robe hit his face, he bowed deeply to me. It was a Chinese yili, the formal greeting of the Confucian gentleman. Sister Yuna, he said in an even tone, Taido hopes that you have been well. When we were younger, he had used his formal Chinese-style name only with his Confucian teachers, and it sounded strange now to hear him use it with me. I understood that he was observing the proprieties with the king's men and his parents possibly looking on, and he was honoring me by giving me such a formal greeting. Yet I was disappointed. It was as though his mabui, his spirit, was not in the graceful body in front of me. 
I bowed back to him in a yili, my pose a mirror of his, except that my right hand covered my left. Other than the king's ministers, I never greeted anyone that way. There seemed to be a gulf between us. Will you walk with me and tell me how you have been, Brother Tadol? He nodded awkwardly, and we walked along the shore of Nafa Harbor, away from the bustle of the men unloading the ships. I was hoping that away from the elders I would get my sweet Lizan back, my Ningurugua. I asked him about his years in China, and he grew animated as he told me of the wonders he had seen. Having spoken little or no Uchinaguchi for four years, his speech was halting and slow and laced with many Chinese words that he had explained to me. He told me of the magnificent old palaces of Nanjing and the shipyards where they built Admiral Zhenghe's great treasure ships. He spoke of the even more magnificent forbidden city in Beijing, a metropolis that had more people than all the islands of Yuchu. He spoke of the famous Confucian scholars and their debates, and how he was mesmerized for hours as they expounded on the intricacies of the classics. He spoke of the drinking games the students at the Imperial Academy play together, and their visits to the tea houses to listen to singing girls and comic stories. There were students from Korea, Cambodia, Siam, Brunei, and many other countries, and he had even mingled with the red-haired traders from Portugal and smugglers and missionaries from Europe. Do you wish to go back to China again? I asked. He nodded without hesitation. Beijing is the center of civilization. On this island we are like frogs at the bottom of a well. You do not understand how wide the world is. I walked on with him without saying anything. One of our favorite things to do was to visit the indigo houses. He blushed at this. Not all of the women in those places were there to ply that trade. Some only conversed and presided as hostesses over drinking parties and played music and sang. The women of Beijing are beautiful, but none more so than Miss Cho Sungjai, a Korean beauty famed for her skill at composing poetry and clever character riddles. She would dance in a silk hanfu embroidered with peonies, a golden chrysanthemum in her hair, and clinking jade bells dangling from her belt. As she sang the poems of Su Dongpo, we thought we were transported back to the glory of the Song Dynasty. I corresponded with her, and she writes such lovely, graceful letters. I apologized for my rudeness, explaining that I had to prepare for the king's banquet that night. I walked away quickly, hiding my face so that he would not see the tears that were threatening to fall. It was not completely a lie. I did have to prepare the centerpiece for the king's banquet that night, a new shadow sculpture to honor the Ming emperor. I took a misshapen piece of driftwood and put it on the potter's wheel. All the windows in my workshop were heavily curtained to keep the inside dark. A single chimney-like light well on the roof, lined with silver, directed the sunlight into a straight beam that shone down into the workshop. A mirror set below the light well caught the beam and reflected it across the room so that whatever was placed on the potter's wheel would cast its shadow against the white silk screen on the opposite wall. By turning the potter's wheel I could easily change the direction of the light and with it the shape of the shadow. I turned the wheel and whittled at the driftwood until the shadow shape was roughly what I wanted. A broken conch shell with a jagged lip placed on the driftwood then added an open mouth full of teeth. A few sea turtle collarbones added shadowy horns. With an iron file I enlarged and smoothed out a shipworm hole in the driftwood. The light shining through the hole gave the shadow eyes. On the potter's wheel sat a pile of debris that might have been left at the edge of the tide. But behind it, on the silk screen, was the shadow of the head of a roaring Chinese dragon, the symbol of the Ming emperors. I have been crafting sculptures out of shadows ever since I was a little girl. 
but they were just for play until my mother died, the year that Rizan left for China. Because I had no talent as a yuta, I could not speak with her maboy when I was sad or alone, and I tried to hold on to her the only way I could, by keeping her old dresses and jewels close by, and replaying her smiles and words in my memories. A month after her death, I went to a sacred spring in the mountains, taking her favorite dress with me to keep me company. There I made an offering of food to the pair of stone statues of the Shishi, the lion dog, protector from evil. I sat there and told the statues how much I missed her. I cried and then wiped my eyes and sat in silence, thinking about my mother. A loud peal of laughter shook me out of my reverie. I looked up, and a Kijimuna, his red hair bouncing like the flame of a torch, was running away into the woods. I saw that he had been playing with my mother's dress and had hung it on a tree branch that leaned out over the spring water, out of my reach. I was so angry that I cursed at the Kijimuna and threw a rock after him. "'Yuna, you underestimate your own talent!' the sprite shouted back and disappeared. I turned around. The sun had moved across the sky, and the dress cast a shadow across the surface of the spring in the shape of my mother. As the wind swayed the dress, the shadow seemed to dance the way my mother used to. Why didn't I think of that? Daughter, I heard my mother's voice. You are a Yuta after all. Let the spirit speak through you by casting shadows. I am so proud of you. My shadow sculptures were praised by many. Several of them were gifted by King Shounei to the daimyo, Shimazu Yoshisa, Lord of Satsuma in Japan. And one was even sent to the Wanlei Emperor in Beijing. If he held up a torch and walked around that sculpture, which seemed to be merely a pile of seashells and carved bones, he would see its shadow transform in sequence into the silhouette portraits of each of the thirteen Ming emperors from Hongwu to Wanli. The emissary told me that even the emperor himself was amazed when he saw it. As I contemplated the shadow of the dragon on the screen, I prayed for a spirit to inhabit the sculpture. Like a person with his mabui, a shadow sculpture is only complete when a spirit has inhabited it. I felt the presence of a cold and haughty spirit pass by me in the dark room. The light beam flickered, and the shadow of the dragon seemed to come alive, its movements imbued with a proud, disdainful air. When the Chinese envoy saw this later tonight, I hoped that he would be amazed at the skill of the Ryuchu people and the beauty of our art. Suddenly it was very important to me that I make the Chinese envoy admire something that he could only see here and that no Chinese could make. Ah, but what was the use? My Rizan was lost to me. He had gone overseas and seen what the great metropolises had to offer. He dreamt of the glamorous Miss Cho who had lured away his heart. I felt shabby, insignificant, and I understood for the first time the word provincial. The state dinner to welcome Chen Leha was held at the great hall of Shui Castle. Also in attendance was the envoy from Satsuma, Hirata Masamune, a great samurai. He had come to Ryuchu a few weeks earlier to give King Shounei a message from his lord, and tarried when he heard that the Chinese envoy would be arriving. Priest Kian, the king's tea master, walked around with Hirata, translating for him and introducing him to the king's ministers. While the dancers welcomed the guests with a kumiodori dance opera, the royal kitchen brought out plates of the finest food from all of Ryuchu, bitter melon and tao gourd, roasted pork and goat, tofu soup flavored with conch and kubu kelp, steamed kuyu carp, and the freshest sashimi of gachun, mackerel, ayagachu, bonito, and flying tubu. There was plenty of rice wine flowing, but the mood was not festive. King Shounei made an effort to toast the envoys from China and Satsuma equally, 
but they did not speak to each other, and the tension in the air made everyone whisper in subdued tones. I sat at one of the low tables along with the other Utah and the Nuru priestesses. I kept my eyes on Dizan, who was sitting next to Chen and translated for him. He was deferential to the Chinese envoy, and they frequently laughed as they spoke to each other. I imagined them swapping the latest gossip in Beijing and sighing over Miss Cho. I had to get away from the painful sight. I left the great hall for the servants' quarters to be sure that the shadow sculpture was ready to be presented. Two Kijimuna were dancing around the sculpture in the small storage room. Get away from there! I shooed them away. There was no telling what kind of mischief they were up to. Or I'll tell an octopus to come after you. The Kijimuna giggled. You look so sad, Yuna. We will cheer you up with a good joke. They ran away and disappeared into the shadows. I looked over the sculpture carefully. It seemed to be all right. Stealing myself, I returned to the banquet. Hirata stood up to offer a toast to Chen, but there was no warmth in his voice. Now that Lord Toyotomi Hideyoshi has united the three islands of Japan, a new order of affairs will come to preside in Asia. I bring a message from Lord Toyotomi. Let us drink to the hope that China's emperor, the emperor of the West, will change his mind and begin trade relations with Japan's emperor, the emperor of the East. His toast was translated into Uchinaguchi and Chinese, and Chen's face darkened. He did not drink but stood up and replied, Toyotomi has never ceased to threaten and insult the great Ming. We cannot trade with the king of Japan until he puts an end to the Japanese pirate raids on our coast and properly performs the rites of a tributary mission. Hirata laughed. The days of tributary missions are over. I sincerely hope that China does not regret the insult she has given Lord Toyotomi and his 20,000 samurai today. Chen grew angrier. Is that a threat? What moral justification is there to resort to arms when someone wishes not to trade with you? Surely if Japan were to seal off its ports and refuse to trade with other states, you would not consider it a moral act for another state to send ships full of soldiers to your ports to convince you. King Shonei tried to break up the escalating words. Both China and Japan are superior centers of civilization and honored guests of small, humble Ryuchu. Please set aside your differences on my behalf tonight and enjoy what my poor realm has to offer. We will give each of you a hundred bolts of our finest bingata cloth. Let us also admire together a creation from our young Yuna, famed shadow crafter of the Pacific, to honor the Ming Emperor. The lights in the great hall were dimmed, and servants carried my sculpture into the empty space in the middle of the tables. Two men held up a silk screen behind the sculpture, facing the table with the king and the envoys. A great torch was lit and brought over to cast the shadow upon the screen. The flickering shadow cast on the screen was not that of a dragon, but the profile of a sheep's head bowed down, grazing. I could feel the spirit trapped in the sculpture leap with humiliation and anger. A collective gasp, followed by dead silence. Too late, I realized that the Kijimuna had played a prank and turned my sculpture to a different angle than what I intended. When the king recovered, he immediately ordered the lights relit and the sculpture brought away. While Hirata looked on with a satisfied sneer, the king tried to apologize to Chen. Surely this was a meaningless accident. Please do not be angry at Yuna. Chen stood and whipped his broad sleeves before him as though brushing away a disgusting insect. This injury to the honor of the great Ming cannot be tolerated. I would not have expected such an insult from Ryuchu. We deign to grace your wild chieftain with the title of king and call your shabby house a palace. And this is how you repay us? Small islands filled with uncivilized brutes. I've had enough of your primitive cooking and barbaric arts. The insolent girl must be punished. 
I trembled as time seemed to slow down. I waited for the guards to seize me. Was I going to die for the Kijimuna's joke? As though in a dream I heard the voice of Rizan. I looked up and saw shadows flicker across his face like spirits fighting. He spoke in ringing Uchinaguchi. Do not presume that because you are from a great country that you can trample over the honor of lesser states. We have done no deliberate insult to you, but you have willfully dishonored us. Your ugly words and thoughts do not display the grace of Confucian benevolence, but only the petulance of a spoiled child. I looked over at him, and he seemed taller and stronger than I had ever seen him. Your haughty disdain betrays the ideals that have made the Ming worthy of being called great. I shall always be grateful to the Ming Emperor for my education, yet tonight I am ashamed to wear the same clothes as you, and I am sorry to have learned speaker language so well that I feel so deeply the wound from your arrogant speech. He stripped off his Chinese-style robe and threw it on the ground. Without any more words, Chen turned around and left with his retinue. King Shounei tried to apologize further, but gave up when he saw there was no use. He waved away the guards around me. Perhaps the spirits are trying to speak through Yuna's shadows. Amidst the uproar and confusion in the great hall, Lizan walked over to me. The torches behind him cast a long shadow before him, and his shadow reached me first. I looked down to see our shadows meld together. I am sorry, Yuna, for having almost forgotten what was most important in the world. Forgetting your native tongue means forgetting your native country. The cold splendor of the forbidden city cannot compare to the homely warmth of Shui Castle, because one cannot ever be truly warm unless one is at home. The wonders of Beijing's millions of inhabitants and bustling markets cannot compare to the memory of Uchina sunsets and the laughter of Kijimuna etched in my heart. The charm and beauty of Miss Cho Sung Jai may captivate a thousand men, but she cannot compare to you, my Ningurugua, because our shadows have been joined, and I cannot tell where I start and you end. My heart was filled with so much joy that I could not speak. I felt the vitality of the Mabui of the man that I embraced. I had my dear Rizan back, finally. The Chinese and Japanese envoys both left the next day but there was much to discuss for the king's advisers. A great war is coming, priest Kian said. Lord Toyotomi will invade Korea and China soon with a hundred thousand samurai, and all of Asia, even India and Siam, shall fall before Japan's might. Toyotomi has demanded that we break off relations with China, submit to him, and send Ryuchu's warriors to aid Japan's invasion. This we must do if Ryuchu is to survive. Lizan shook his head. We are a small country. Even Kyushu alone or a single province of China is a hundred times the size of all our islands. But we have always charted our own independent course among the great powers, and we should not submit to Japan. Yuna's shadows may be a sign that China's power is in decline, yet Japan's Kaosu's Bella is unjust, and the gods will not favor her. In war, it is difficult to predict who will win. If we aid Japan and the invasion fails, China may seek vengeance against us. Moreover, though China may be arrogant at times, she has always been fair to us in trade and done us no injury. It would be wrong to go to war with her under threat from Japan. Besides, we have been at peace for hundreds of years, and our people are used to trade and cultivation, not arms. In the affairs of the great states, we must hold on to our own moral compass and observe and pray for peace. We must remain neutral. In the affair of the great states... Priest Kion said, There is no right or wrong, only the strong and the weak. If we do not pick a side, a side will be picked for us. Many, many people died when Toyotomi invaded China and Korea two years later, with the largest army to ever come out of Japan. 
King Shonei, with your father's advice, carefully turned down Japan's demands for Ryuchu's submission and aid, and kept to the course of neutrality and trade. His caution was proven right seven years later, as Toyotomi lay on his deathbed. His samurai, unable to defeat Korea and China, had to retreat. While war raged on the continent, on Uchina, the nineteen years after that fateful state dinner, were mostly full of happy memories, many of them because you came into our lives. Lizan became a good advisor and administrator for the king, while my shadowcraft grew in power and fame. Duchu was peaceful and prosperous. But all that came to an end this year. Shimazu Taratsune, lord of Satsuma, invaded Duchu with a hundred ships and three thousand warriors to punish us for neutrality during the Seven Years' War. Our men, strangers to war, fell by the hundreds and were quickly overcome by Japanese arquebuses and samurai swords. We sought aid from the Ming Emperor, and only then did we finally understand the meaning of my shadow sculpture's prophecy all those years before. The great Ming, weakened by the Seven Years' War, no longer had the appetite to be involved abroad. No help would be forthcoming for Duchu. In Nafa Harbor, I led the women in hanging up painted cloths that from a distance gave the appearance of a great fleet preparing for war. At night, we created a shadow fleet out of lights and toy ships. These tricks confused the Japanese fleet and kept them at bay for a few days. Finally, when they saw through the tricks and attacked, we blinded the Japanese sailors with my mirror shields from the shore and gave your father a chance to win a naval victory. But our joy was short-lived. Under cover of night, Shimazu's soldiers landed away from Nafa, surprised our men, and sacked Shui Castle, capturing King Shounei. He ordered all resistance to cease to save the lives of the people. Shimazu's men looted Shui Castle for days and burned what they could not steal. They sought to take away and burn down the Mabui of Duchu itself. And so, King Shounei and a hundred of his ministers, your father and I among them, were brought as captives to Edo to submit to the Shogun, and then to Kagoshima, where we would swear oaths of fealty and submission to the lords of Satsuma. This is part of the oath the king was made to sign. The islands of Ryukyu have from ancient times been a feudal dependency of Satsuma. In the time of his highness Toyotomi Hideyoshi, we had failed fully to comply with the requisitions made upon us for supplies and services. Therein we were remiss in our duty and were very guilty. Thus did we bring trouble to our shore. You, our lord, sent an army to chastise us. Thus is history made with lies and falsehoods in black ink and white paper, like the bleak features of a horse painted face under the harsh light of noon. Yesterday the men of Satsuma came to demand the king's ministers to sign oaths too, so that they would owe their allegiance more to the lords of Satsuma than to King Shonei and the people of Ryuchu. It was to crush any hope of freedom. If, peradventure, any man of Ryukyu ever in times to come plans a revolt against you, great lord of Satsuma, yea, if it were our chieftain himself who should be drawn to join revolt, yet we nevertheless obedient to the commands of our great lord, will never be false to our oath by abetting a rebel, be he lord or churl. One after the other, the king's ministers signed this oath, too ashamed to look to the king's lonely figure. Priest Kian was among the first to sign. When it came to your father's turn, he refused. In all my life I have had only one home, the island of Uchina in the kingdom of Duchu. In all my life I have loved only one woman, my Yuna. In all my life I have served only one master, King Shounei. A good horse will not permit anyone other than his true master to ride him, and a good minister will not serve anyone other than his true lord. The men of Duchu are not afraid. He looked at me as he spoke. 
and I felt like I was seeing him again on that night at the banquet when he defended the honor of our land and came back to me. It took ten men to subdue him. Oh, daughter, I wish you could have seen the way your father fought. He was a dragon among dogs. He never asked for mercy as they held him down. King Shone begged them to let your father go, while the other ministers hid their faces in shame. They dragged me away as they cut off your father's head, and it felt as if my mabui left my body then so that it might kiss your father's lifeless lips one final time. They will hang me in the morning. I hold out my hands in the moonlight, casting the shadow of a kichicha, the woodpecker of Uchina, and I wish your fathers and my mabui could inhabit the shadow and fly free. But my art has its limits, and that path is not open to me. Your father did not die in vain. The strength of his resistance, even unto death, gave Shimazu's men pause, and won our people a measure of autonomy. They have relented in their terms. Though Ryuchu shall forever pay Satsuma a heavy tribute and lose her independence, we will keep our own language and customs, and daily life for the people may go on. Your father and I, two spirits in this foreign land, will always keep each other company in the shadows cast by falling cherry blossoms and diving cranes. We regret that we will never see you grow into the beautiful and strong woman that you will be, but we do not regret dying for the people of Ryuchu. Priest Kian and the other ministers are blaming the Satsuma invasion on your father. Cruel vultures and leeches that will try to defame him with their ink brush. Daughter, do not despair. True history exists not in books, but in the shadows cast by men down the years. When the world will have forgotten Kian and his cowardly lies, the people of Uchina will still keep the memory of your father alive in their hearts. I wish I had praised you more often for the bright, intricate, colorful bingata cloth that you create. I have watched you place paper stencils on the cloth and paint over them with a dye-resisting rice paste. You would then fill in the stenciled-out areas with different shades of bright paint. I understand now that the patterns on the bingata cloth are really just shadows left behind by the stencils, and the dye is your light. So you are a shadow crafter too, and as long as the women of Uchina still create bingata, the maboy of my mother, me, and you will live on, casting our shadows down the years, living on in the laughter and tears of our Ryuchu, our Uchina, our home. Author's Notes the historic Teido Jana Uekata Rizan was much older than his fictional counterpart here. The Ryukyuan words and phrases used are largely derived from Mitsugu Sakihara's Okinawan English wordbook and do not represent attempts to recreate faithfully ancient Ryukyuan phonology. English translations of the oaths taken by the Ryukyuan king and ministers after the Satsuma invasion are taken from George Carr's Okinawa, the History of an Island People. And welcome back. Alright, let me check those vials. Yep, what I tell you, they're full. Love, sacrifice, art, and magic. Hmm. Sometimes it seems easy to tell what the honorable thing to do is. Sometimes it seems easier to not do it. To sign off on what everyone else is signing off on. To shrug. I used to think sacrifice, real sacrifice wouldn't be so hard. You know what I found is, though? The small choices and struggles that come about regularly and seem so pedestrian, so mundane. The everyday sacrifices. May we learn to meet them with grace and honor. Thanks, Ken, for this story and to Ahi for reading it. 
We hope you enjoyed listening to The Shadow Crafter by Ken Liu. If you'd like support for writing your own Podcastle story, do what Podcastle authors Tina Connolly, Gord Seller, and Ben Burgess did. They and dozens of professionals like them attended Clarion West's annual six-week writer's workshop. You can find out more about this life-changing experience and apply to participate when you visit www.clarionwest.org. The deadline for receiving your application for this year's session is March 1st, 2014. Some scholarships are available. Minorities and those with special needs are encouraged to apply. Once again, that's www.clarionwest.org. Thanks. Okay, let's do feedback this week. Hey, that other Ken Liu story I mentioned at the beginning that Ahi Gibbons read, Maxwell's Demon. This was the story of a young Japanese-American woman who was freed from an internment camp during World War II to become an American spy in Okinawa. Unsurprisingly, it left some of our listeners choked up at the end. Go figure. Albion Moonlight said, This reminded me a lot of Cloud Atlas' book, I Have Yet to See the Movie, a world where large forces of evil and selfishness pervade, but you follow individual people who are trying to find and do good in that world. A battle between good and evil where your sense of who won really requires you to think about what you mean by victory. A great story that will stay in my head for a long time. Well, thank you so much for those comments. You can get in on the action at forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this week's story. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Every single cent goes to paying our authors, keeping our podcast running, so we can bring you the best in fantasy fiction. Thanks. Well, that was our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for sharing a story with us here. Podcastle is made up of associate editors Ann Lackey, LaShawn Wanick, and Graham Dunlop. Our sound producer is Peter Wood, and it's edited by Anna Schwind and myself, Dave Thompson. We'll be back for you in one week to open a door to the little room. Until then, this is Dave Thompson reminding you to be a dragon among dogs. We'll see you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Glenn David Gold wrote, In his youth, he had believed everything was possible. Then in grief, he believed everything was impossible. And now, he felt that when you had lived enough of your life, there was no difference between the two. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you all soon. Please hear my anguish words of truth. What is right and what is wrong. Of the past.